Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. So I want to start out by reminding you that there is a website called wealthformula.com with lots of goodies there. You can download all sorts of great information and content, including my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can also have me just text that to you. Go ahead and text, uh, you know, the cell phone thing, 44222, and type in Wealth Formula, one word, and that is yours for the taking. I want to talk today about this idea of leverage, okay? Because leverage is really important. And the tricky thing, though, is that leverage in the form of bank debt is a double-edged sword. Now, listen. Obviously, we are past this point where we already know, right, that consumer debt to buy things like televisions, cars, all of that stuff can be, is pretty much uh, negative in the financial sense, right? I mean, it's not going to do you any good to charge something, uh, some kind of a doodad, as Robert Kiyosaki would say, and hope. Uh, you know, and then and then have that accumulate. You're just going to pay more money. However, using debt uh, to buy things that are going to make you money, namely cash flowing assets, is perhaps the single most powerful weapon that we have to create wealth. And it's also what makes real estate, in particular, the asset of choice for the ultra wealthy. You know, the problem is though that leverage. Uh, is a tool, right? And like any tool, you got to know how to use it. A fool with a tool is still a fool. So leverage must be deployed carefully based on the asset itself and the market conditions, etc. I mean, look, in 2008, banks and buyers were both over leveraged and that created, well, a big mess, right? For borrowers, it was the it was often the first time that they paid close attention to the fine print on the mortgages that they signed in the first place. You know, those promissory notes that no one really thinks about until they do. <laughs> I mean, that that fine print there often includes what are known as loan covenants. Now, a loan covenant, what is a loan covenant? Well, it's just a promise that you make with the bank that lends you money. Uh, for example, a bank may say that they'll lend you 80% of the value of a property. 
that is known as 80% loan to value, LTV, right? That's what we call it in the business. That means that you have to come up with the 20% and that 80% that the bank loans you um, has to be confirmed with an appraisal. That's why we get appraisals, right? And it's based on the appraisal value at the time of the purchase. So what if your property goes down in value just because the market dips and the property you bought goes down in value? Well, in that case, if there is a loan covenant, as I'm describing, you're violating it. And if you're violating a loan covenant, does the bank care whether you're cash flowing? Well, maybe, maybe not. And if they find out, they very well may ask you to cough up some more money so that you're no longer in violation of those covenants. Or uh, they could say, hey, and if you can't do this, by the way, we're going to take that property. You may not think that this is realistic, but for larger assets, there's periodic appraisals from the bank maybe every 18 months. It's standard. That means that you can't hide from them, right? And if you think, again, that this is an unlikely scenario, I would suggest you talk to any major real estate investor who owned property and had debt in 2008. Values plummeted, and regardless of cash flow, there were capital calls and people lost properties. Now, few serious real estate investors argue uh, that we are not a little late in the cycle. We might be in the ninth inning. We might actually be coming back down as we speak. But does that mean that you should stop investing? Well, I don't think so. I just think you have to be smart about it. We was talking about this in our forum today, our mastermind call that, you know, people have been talking about being at the top of the market, being in a bubble, blah, 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 for, you know, three, four years now, right? I mean, I mean, gosh, if you listen to some of these other guys out there who I think are smart, but a little paranoid, you know, you wouldn't have invested in, in real estate for five, six years, and you would look pretty foolish right now, you know? But I think most people say, well, there's probably going to be some kind of correction. I mean, we're in now the longest expansion of GDP ever, um, consecutive uh, uh, quarters. And, you know, we've got a lot of debt, you know, rates are rising slowly but surely. So maybe things are going to happen. So we just can't time it. And so if you can't time it, you got to keep just going and you have to just plan on what you're going to do accordingly. You just have to be smart about it. Again, it's impossible to time out the markets, you know, to, mar- to, to, to basically time, to, to, to predict when things are going to turn and if there's precipitous drops or whatever. So what can you do? You can think about where you're at. And if we're late in the cycle, we know now, right at this time, that it's best not to over leverage. And that means two things, really. So we talked about, the loan covenants, and you know, if you're buying something or if you're part of a syndication that's buying something, ask the question, is there a loan covenant? And if so, what is it? And if you're buying something and if the bank is willing to, you know, have uh, lend you 80%, maybe you say, yeah, that's great. Put it in the covenant if you've got a covenant, but maybe I'll only take 70%. The other strategy to consider is, is to actively deleverage once you uh, acquire that property. And what does that mean? Well, if you create equity in the property itself, uh, then you're deleveraging. So, for example, in larger assets, the value, and this is commercial assets, they're not 
valued the same way that a home is. You know, if somebody goes into a home and says, I think it's worth this, that's just not the way it works, right? And commercial properties, um, the value of a property is dependent on the net operating income. The more net operating income, the greater the value of the property, right? So if you're worried about decompressing cap rates, one of the things you can do is to continue to drive equity in that property. And when you do that, you are effectively deleveraging, right? You're creating less leverage because the value of the property went up as it compares to the amount you borrowed. And that is my strategy right now when it comes to acquiring real estate. Use moderate leverage and drive up net operating income. That is huge. And if you can get a bank to give you favorable covenants or have no loan covenants at all, that helps too. But buying a property with no intent of creating additional value and maximizing leverage is, in my view, a little bit risky. Anyway, that's my advice for the week when it comes to buying real estate right now. Now, if you don't believe me that you can build some serious wealth from leveraging real estate um, like I say you can and that I think that is one of the keys for the ultra wealthy, then you're going to want to listen to this guy that we're interviewing today. He's a guy by the name of Grant Cardone, and he's made a, well, a few hundred million doing exactly that. So when we come back, Grant Cardone. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Grant Cardone. Uh, he's probably familiar to many of you. For those of you who are not familiar with him, Grant works with small companies and Fortune 500 companies to grow sales by finding overlooked opportunities and customizing the sales process to be more effective. He's worked with the likes of Google, Sprint, Aflac, Toyota, GM, Ford, and thousands more. He's also the owner and operator of four companies uh, that do almost $100 million in annual sales. And a, he's also a prolific real estate investor who's amassed several hundred million dollars in his portfolio over the years. But it doesn't stop there. He's also a New York Times bestselling author and international speaker. Grant, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Hey, th thank you, Buck, for having me. I appreciate it. Love the audience, by the way. You got a great audience of, uh, of knowledgeable and inspired listeners. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, uh, 
we're happy about that. Grant, you know, I think your, um, you know, your social media presence is robust, right? So it's probably hard for most people uh, not to have heard about you at one time or another. Um, I, uh, I'm really impressed by that. Can, and obviously your career has been very successful. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got there? Because obviously you're, you know, from, from reading about you, from watching your videos, you certainly were not born into it. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, my, I grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I had doctors actually that lived on both sides of it. So, so the fact that you come out of that space, Dr. Stevens was on the right side. He was the rich guy with a tennis court and Dr. Morin was the, uh, a bone and bone surgeon in our town. And he was well-to-do guy with the, the nicest brick house in the neighborhood. And uh, then there was my dad who basically had bought this house. It was on an acre and a half of land. It was 18 months before my dad would pass and he'd bought this dream house. He was a stockbroker. Uh, before that, he was an insurance salesman. Before that, he was uh, in the automobile industry. And before that, he was a grocer. They were, I come from Italian, an Italian family that grew up in Louisiana. Their, both their parents were immigrants to this country. <clears throat> and my dad had made it into the middle class. You know, he, he went from a, being in poverty to firmly into the middle class. This was literally a dream home that we had on right. the lake. Uh, looked at the bridge. You could see the refineries. Right. You know, and this was a dream, dude. Like, it was like, this was a big deal. And, and I was 10 years old. My dad died. 18 months after he bought his dream home um, of a heart attack, St you know, a lot of stress. He was overweight, sure, you know, sure. ate wrong. And, and um, my mom had to sell the house the next week. The house was paid for, by the way. Yeah. And we had to sell the house because my dad had some life insurance money and it paid proceeds. She cashed it in. And then she didn't know how to make income. Well, I'm telling you all that to tell you where I came from, right? Sure. Because for the next really 15 years of my life, from 10 to 25, I watched my mom terrified every day about how much or how little she could spend. Yeah. It, it was every day. Like I was getting, I was getting my first real education on economics. I went, I went to college. I got an accounting degree and, um, you know, I was always interested in money and economics because my dad was. Right. And, but I wasn't putting it all together that this middle class thing that my dad was patting himself on the back for before he died. You know, the house, the cars were paid for, the life insurance, the kids get to go to school. We had three square meals a day. We, we, we didn't have holes in our tennis shoes. I didn't walk to school barefooted. I don't have, you know, there was nobody beating us up at the house, but the reality is fear was beating us up. Scarcity was beating us up. Um, you know, turn off the lights, eat all your food, don't overspend, save for a rainy day. Like that was being pummeled into me every second of every day. And somewhere around 16 years old, uh, th th this had a big impact on me because I remember at 16, I was angry. I couldn't help my mom. I was shameful i couldn't help her because i saw her in fear you know when you're when you're a mama's boy which i was uh, really close to my mom and i couldn't help her it, it really hurt me so i told my mom out of frustration when i was 16 i said one day i'm gonna be really successful 
Okay. And I'm not going to have to worry about money every second of every day. Oh, you should be, you should be so grateful for what you have, you know? And I said, well, I'm not grateful. This is, this is freaking, this is not good. You know, that, that we had to worry about the cost of gas, by the way, this problem that I had at 16 has become an even, even bigger problem in America today because the numbers are so much bigger today. You know, you and I were talking before this about how many doctors out there are making three and four and $500,000 and don't have any money overextended. And, and my, the, jo- the joke I tell you is, you know, if you're making 40 grand a year and, and you're, you're, you're in debt, you can tell your friends, if you're making 400 grand a year and you're a doctor, you can't tell anybody. <laughs> I know. I know. So, so, you know, today, uh, some of the, I mean, I have, Almost we have we'll, we'll hit a billion dollars in real estate this year. Yeah, assets under management. I own I own probably eighty eight percent of them uh, of the value of that portfolio. Uh, the businesses are seven businesses now. We'll do about one hundred fifty million bucks. Like like to know where I'm at today compared to where I I grew up and how I grew up just shows you the power not of me but of the American the possibilities in this country. If a person is not seduced by just enough money, you know, if you're not seduced by a title and millionaire status, if you're not seduced by that and you actually put a game plan in place, still today a person create tremendous legacy uh, wealth for themselves. Right. Now, um, so you talked a little bit about this scarcity uh, that kind of was the, in some some regards, was necessary because you 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 had, you were living sort of a, maybe it was a middle class upper middle class life while your dad was alive, and then boom, all of a sudden it was done. And it's funny because it's almost like a it's almost like a metaphor for American retirees, right? Because they're uh, because everybody's you know trained to try to put away enough money so that they don't outlive it. <laughs> But you had that vision or you had that experience yeah. at a relatively young age. Now, when you when you had the scarcity mentality, I can't imagine that that didn't uh, initially penetrate your own belief systems and how you viewed money. Now, obviously, you broke out of that. Now, how did how did that happen? Well, I mean, look, my mom said to me so many times, you, you, the, we're in the middle class, right? Even when she had to sell the house. She had to sell the house because she didn't have income coming in to keep taking care of the house. Remember, we didn't have a we didn't have any a mortgage. Right. My mom didn't have we didn't have a mortgage. All the houses were paid for. We had zero debt. Everything that they teach, the Dave Ramsey right. and Susie Orman and Smart Money and CNN Money and all the the bloggers out there to talk about pay all your cards off. We had all that. Right. That did not get rid of fear. Every time I hear the word middle class today, I know that, that, that I should be running for the hills. And nobody's telling the story right now. It's like in America, if you're in the middle class, you are somehow, you've somehow been like sanctioned by the Pope of economics that you're going to be all right. It's a lie. And the politicians can't tell us the truth. So, so like when I hear middle class today, all I remember every time I hear that is my mom's scared. I'm worried. Okay. Oh, I'm planning for retirement. Okay. My dad never made it to retirement. What was he planning for? 
Yep. So, so my dad made enough money to be scared. You know, I remember when I read the book, The Millionaire Next Door. I loved that book because when I read that book, I said, I'll never be the millionaire next door. <laughs> I will never be the millionaire next door. I'm not going to buy a Ford F-150 used because that's how you become a millionaire next door. Right. Okay? Millionaires are scared about their money. Every millionaire I've ever met is a guy that he might join a country club, right? He won't burn his Nikes because, you know, he, they're paid for. Um, they, 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 they brag about their two kids going to the best colleges. Oh, by the way, they're baristas at Starbucks. <laughs> It's like the whole thing, man. The whole thing. You really, everybody, your, your listeners should really start challenging everything to do with the middle. And, uh, I mean, just look, like, like the housing thing. My dad buying a house. Supposedly a house is supposed to be an asset. But if it was an asset that's paid for, why did my mom have to sell it the next week? Right. Well, you know, like Robert Kiyosaki says, right? Um, you know, Robert was on the show some time ago. And, uh, he had the same, by the way, he had the same uh, uh, negative view of the Millionaire Next Door book. Um, yeah. But, um, but uh, you know, an asset is something that puts money in your pocket and, and a paid yeah. off home isn't really something that's going to help you make money, right? Um, you know, one of the things, though, that I, I think about specifically as it as it comes to, um, you know, whether it's the poor, whether it's the middle class, and really even the upper middle class is there, there tends to be something that I call, um, that I call the wealth thermostat. And what I mean by that is, you know, people sort of get into a rut, and they have a certain level of wealth they expect, um, whether that's $50,000 per year, or, you know, maybe they're worth 50 million, but yeah. um, they're going to get there one way or another once they set it. I mean, you see billionaires all the time losing their money, and then they make it all back. Um, you see guys who are, you know, doing a hundred thousand dollars a year, and all of a sudden they make a bunch of money, and then boom, all of a sudden they're back. Do yeah. you think yeah, it's back true? Yeah. yeah, I mean, why? I mean, why is that? Uh, you know, I think. I don't know the answer to that question, why that is. You know, I think, you know, you're going to tell me it's some mental decision to attract what. I, I, I don't know. I just know this. What people people need to be. You know, when we talk about financial illiteracy in this country, the first thing you think is some urban kid, Baltimore, inner city that doesn't know how to balance a checkbook. OK, this has nothing to do with checkbook. This has got something to do with the deck. The, the data that we have is incorrect. Okay. So the, the, the data, the data has been skewed by institutions that benefit by us moving in a certain way. Anybody thinks that we're not being manipulated by agendas of the big boys doesn't understand promotion and marketing. So banks were built for uh, uh, houses were built for banks. They weren't built for people. The IRA and the Keogh, that whole scam was put together for Wall Street. It was not put together to retire on. Wall Street's going out tonight drinking freaking $28 martinis because you're waiting for your retirement money for 30 years. Right. So, So anybody that is not willing to, like the nightmare, the financial nightmare will continue for people that refuse to wake up. So, so 
the, the, here, here, here's one, okay? Don't borrow money unless you're going to college. Right. Harvard's got $38 billion worth of endowments. They own every piece of real estate within like a 12-mile a radius of Harvard. And by the way, on top of that real estate is not land and trees. It's either retail, Starbucks, a little retail shops they're, they're leasing to owners, or it's a house that they can provide housing on. Like they're income driven, the endowments, the smartest money on this planet goes for cash flow. They don't go for cash. So even that cash, cash is king, that idea that permeates society. I could go into a room of 10,000 people and say cash is, and they would all say king. No, cash flow is gar- cash is garbage. Cash flow. That's what Warren Buffett knows. Bill Gates knows it. Apple computer, Amazon. Jeff Bezos is the cash flow king of the universe. Yeah. So these guys that we talk about scaled so big into so much wealth. Okay. The thermostat, they just broke the wealth code basically. Okay. They're not thinking about middle class. They're not thinking about scarcity. They're thinking about how do I scale so that I can service the planet and provide enough income. By the way, all these guys have more money than they can possibly consume themselves. They all end up giving away and doing good stuff with it. So I don't know where the mindset comes from. Uh, I, I know this, it doesn't work. That's the thing that people need to take away today. 500 grand in Silicon Valley means you have about 80 grand left over after taxes and spending. Right. So... How do you determine, um, you know, we talked about the, you know, the, the high paid professionals that I have who you know, clearly don't have enough to quote unquote retire. How do you determine how much is enough? Is yeah. it really just about ultimately, are you just measuring it in cash flow? I mean, it, it seems the, the easy way to do it. Right. But then I have some people who say, listen, I make, you know, $250,000 a year. And I have, you know, so much uh, to invest. It would take me forever to get back to that number. Yeah. Right? So how do you do it? Like what, what's your, you know. My, my, my first target was that I got good at one thing, right? I, I wasn't a doctor or a chiropractor or a dentist. I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity because I didn't study for it to earn 400 grand a year. Right. So my first target was um, I want to earn as much passive income from my investments as money that I work for. So if I'm a doctor making 400 grand a year, I got to figure out how to bank enough money to have enough investments that I get $35,000, $38,000 a month in free cash flow. That would be my target. Now, once you say that, then you're like, okay, what investments do I go to that can provide me with $38,000 a month? How much money would I need to invest? Now I'm starting to be driven by that extra energy to work. Okay. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't about an amount now because everybody's quite, everybody asks the same thing. When's enough enough. It's not when's enough enough. It's where's the enough coming from. Right. And so I want my passive income based on the tax code. I want it to be passive income, not earned income. I'm charged at 20%. So I can make the same money and end up with, with, with hundred percent more money, basically. And, and, uh, and then it's going to be what investments do I want? Well, I'm not buying stocks because I want cash flow. I don't want to lose money. That's Warren Buffett's first rule. Don't lose money. Well, then I'm not buying Ford stock and I'm not buying Facebook stock and I'm not going to buy Amazon stock because they can go down. 
And then I'm looking at, okay, well, I'm not going to buy gold because gold doesn't provide income. I need income every month, so I can't buy AT&T stock because they only pay every quarter. This is how I ended up in the real estate space. I don't want to lose money. Good. Buy good real estate. I can't lose money. Don't over leverage the real estate. I won't lose money. I want to be paid every month. That's real estate. Real estate that has property on top of it. I can't buy land. I don't trust retail. So that's how I ended up. You know, in the beginning, I had three little businesses. I put all my money back in those businesses until those businesses were were puking out so much money that I couldn't spend it on advertising and marketing or servicing my customers. And then I took that money and I put it in bricks. How long ago was that, Grant? How long? When, when did you start buying real estate? Yeah, I was buying real estate when I was 34 years old. I think I bought my first deal when I was 33 or 34 years. I bought my first deal when I was 27. It was a single family resident. Didn't buy another one of those because it didn't work. Right. I learned a big lesson. It was a big mistake. I'll never do that again. And then my second deal, I think I was 31, 32, something like that. And it was uh, 48 units. Right. 30 days later, I bought 38 units. Uh, 90 days later, I bought 90 units. So today I got about 5,000 units. And over time, as long as you don't over leverage, as long as you buy in good locations, and as long as the properties are big enough. By the way, the number of units in real estate, the number of units is the most important number in real estate. It's not the cap rate, it's not the IRR, it's not the return on capital, it's not the cash flow. It is the number of units. This is where me and me and Robert um, uh, differ a little bit. I don't buy single family homes. I don't, I don't want 600 single family homes like Dean Graciosi has. I, I, want, yeah. I want two properties with 600 units. Yeah, yeah. And, and is that, and it's for scale, right? I mean, ultimately it, that's- Well, because I can weather, I can weather problems. Right. I don't want 600 closings either. Yeah. I want two closings and 600 units. That's right. I want the best debt available on the planet, which comes with apartments, by the way. Yep. Now, um, yeah, actually, and, and that's a lot of, you know, the philosophy that, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about on this show specifically, you know, so how do you get involved with that if you're a busy professional? Um, yeah. And, you know, the that has led us to create, you know, a, a, a group of people we call the accredited investor club. And of course, that's only for people who are accredited investors, the large percentage of my listeners are. And we've been able to figure out how to create certain, um, you know, turnkey opportunities where people might be able to, you know, put fifty, hundred thousand, or two hundred thousand dollars in, but then get exposure to two hundred, two hundred fifty doors instead of, right. you know, that. But is that is that um, is that kind of the the model that uh, that you ended up in, or were you just buying? properties on your own? Did you ever use investors or how, how did, uh, you know, not until a year ago. Okay. Yeah. For, for, uh, 24 years, I, I've never, I didn't use investors other than maybe I, I remember I borrowed 90 grand from my mom to finish a deal once. Yeah. I was 45 years old. And I was 90 grand short. And I'm like, I got just lend me the money. I didn't yeah. make her a partner. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'll pay you back as soon as I can, you know, I'll give you 10% or something, whatever. She, she didn't care. Yeah. Right. So, Sometimes, by the way, it's easier just to borrow money from people than make them a partner in the deal. Yeah, well, they say, you know, equity is the most expensive thing to give away, right? So. Yeah, yeah. So uh, about a year ago, uh, because of my social following and because I have so many people that want to do things with me, 
um, we expanded uh, my, our offering to people outside just my f- family members. Like my twin brother was investing with me because he didn't have the time. He was running a company in Europe. He makes a lot of money. Uh, he, you know, he's got, he's got money sitting around. He tried to go do the real estate game that I do. And after three days of shopping properties, like I have no business doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm looking for. I can't get people to call me back. Uh, he's got a company that he could sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So uh, now he gives me the money and I invested it. And we started opening it up to really close uh, executives in the companies and, um, and customers. And what happened was people that know me and, and known I've been doing this, the amount of people that were interested in doing this was like mind boggling. Right. I do a real estate show every Monday out of my office and it's our number one show of all our shows. Yeah. What's interesting is too, is that like, and and I like that you talk about multifamily and the funny thing is, you know, a lot of people, um, including myself really were inspired by Robert Kiyosaki's books and stuff. Um, and the, and, and they come out more often than not thinking that the thing to do is go buy single family houses. Well, the funny thing is that that's not what Robert does. <laughs> and yeah. he, he, and just to be clear, he never really says it's what he does. And when he says, you know, what is rich dad, poor dad all about? He says, it's an accounting book. It's about uh, cash flow. That's really what it is. About and, cash flow. Yeah, right. Really. So, um, but what I want to talk to you specifically about real estate. Can I, can I interrupt yeah. you a second? Cause something, something you just said is really, really important there. Yeah. People, people should, they should watch what people do, not what people say. Sure. Warren, Warren Buffett, okay? Because somebody said, how much money do you have in the stock market? Dude, I don't have any money in the stock market. I will never put any money in the stock market. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, well, that's not what Warren Buffett does. I said, no, no, you don't understand. Warren Buffett says you should invest in the stock market, but he doesn't. Yeah, he buys companies, Warren, right? He buys companies. Right. And he only owns 60 companies. Not very diversified for a guy that's worth $80 billion. So- 60 companies over the period of his lifetime is almost nothing. And he only, he only moved from one company to another because he couldn't take a bigger position in the company without changing uh, the bylaws basically of Coca-Cola or American Express. So people should see what people do, not just what they write or talk about. Yeah. I mean, I always go back to the idea that the Wealthiest families in the world, whether it's the Romneys or the Rothschilds, they're not buying mutual yeah. funds. <laughs> you know? Dude, they're so not buying ETFs. <laughs> they're not buying ETFs. And, and, and if they are, by the way, uh, that doesn't mean you can. They, they've already created enough wealth that, that they're in conservation mode right now. Right. And if you're creating wealth, you need to be in risk mode. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, Without losing money, by the way. You got, you got, you got to be able to be willing to... You got to be in risk mode. If you're a doctor, you want to be in risk mode without losing, without the chance of losing money. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that because right now, um, I'm I'm assuming you would agree that we're we're pretty late in the cycle and in the, the markets and real estate, uh, especially multifamily. Um, and I'm I'm not sure if that was specifically is your area, but that's you know what I look at mostly. It's pretty frothy. Um, you know, my, my focus is because of that, been to be somewhat moderate on leverage and really focus on value add. What's your, you know, what's your assessment of where we are in the market and, you know, how do you, how do you approach it? I think the value adds frothy. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think people need to shift into looking at newer product right now. Yeah, like developments? No, I, I mean, I'm not a developer because I hate timing and, yeah. and, and builders always go busted. If you look at for the last 80 years, builders almost always go out of business. So uh, I don't want to build anything. Sam Zell used to do like Sam never, they never were the first ones in. So I wait till somebody builds something, stabilizes it, and then uh, then I'll buy it. So I personally today would rather a 5% return on a new deal than a 6% return on a value add. How much leverage are you, uh, we, you we use 60 to 65%. Right. Right. I'll never over leverage anything. I'm extremely disciplined. We look at a hundred deals to buy one. Um, in real estate, it's not just what you buy. It's what you don't buy. Never over leverage cash flow for the first month. And then we sit and wait. Okay. We just sit and wait. By the way, a five, 5% return on a brand new deal today, that, that is just so everybody understands, puts into context. Uh, that's 20 times what the bank's paying you in a money market. So is it a buy and hold strategy, long-term buy and hold strategy? For sure. Yeah. For sure. So buy and hold forever like Ken Buy, buy refi, and hold. Yeah. It will probably be like this. Buy, refi in the future, maybe five years, seven years down the line, refi, grab all our dough out, and then sell. Yeah. One of the uh, interesting approaches I like Ken McElroy, who I invest with um, as a private investor as well, is he calls it harvesting money from the property. So he'll go in... And the idea is we'll do some, you know, we'll do a little value add, we'll hold it, uh, we'll cash flow, and then we refi, and then we hold it. And then, you know, seven or eight years goes by again, and guess what? We refi again, and we just keep doing that. So it's harvesting money. So is that the plan for the, so you have a fund now that, uh, or I don't know if it's launched yet, or if. Yeah, no, we've we've offered, this is our fifth fund. Our first three funds were oversubscribed in a very short period of time. And it's it regulation crowdsourced. crowdfunding, so all that crowdfunded. anyone can participate. Is that uh, no, no? It's all Reg D. Is it? Oh, it is. It's Reg D. So it's accredited yeah. investors only. Accredited or, investors only. About a hundred million dollars was raised. Our our fourth fund's a hundred and twenty five million. We think that that will be filled before the end of the year. That's Reg D. We're also launching a Reg A fund because ninety seven percent of my the people that follow me are not qualified. So we're opening that this month. I should be approved with the SEC here in about 10 days. Uh, that's 50 million. I think that that's going to go in less than five days. Yeah. So the regulation. In five, in five days, I think 50 million will be filled. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't fill in 24 hours. Right. Right. So that, uh, again, that's a regulation crowdfunding. Just so people know what that is. It's, uh, it is a, a fund that's open to pretty much anyone. And, um, uh, you don't see those as often. And obviously it's a big, so it's, it's a fund. And again, you're looking at re- just to summarize this newer properties, not, you know, but, not- but, but, but it might not be, I'm looking at two deals in Phoenix right now. I just left Scottsdale. I was in Phoenix, uh, looked at 4,000 units in Phoenix, uh, just last Thursday and Friday, flew to Houston, looked at, uh, another 1600 units there. Like we shop the entire Southwest, uh, right. from the Southwest all the way to, to Miami. Got it. Got and uh, so, like, I'm going to buy 900 units in Phoenix. It's going to cost me about 150,000 a door. It'll be 130 million dollars worth of deals, all value add. Yep, fantastic. So, where can we uh, where can we learn more, Grant? Where can we? Well, first of all, where if 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 people are interested in the, you know, finding out more about the funds, where yeah. uh, where can they do that? 
go to Cardone Capital, CardoneCapital.com. CardoneCapital.com. Yeah, that's the name of the fund. And, and you know, one thing I want to say to you when you said, hey, you don't see many Reg A funds. I, I didn't know this, right? We, right? we just, again, we just started raising money about um, 15 months ago. Right. And I kept asking my staff, I'm like, why, why can't we let other people in? Yeah. The, our average investor puts 400 grand in my fund. These people have watched me for years. I worked for Chrysler and I've worked for Facebook and Google and like some big companies, Ashley Furniture, Morgan Stanley. Like they, hired, they pay me millions of dollars to, to go in and assess their customer satisfaction, their customer experience. So these guys have watched me for years. So when I offered the funds, a lot of these are CEOs. A lot of them are real estate investors. Hey, man, I'll give you a million. I'll give you a half a million. I'll give you 200 grand. But I'm like, but what about all the other people? What about the little guy? Right. You know, what about, because my mom literally couldn't invest in my fund. Right. So I said, what about these other people? And they're like, you don't want to do Reg A. You don't want to do non-accredited. I said, why, why, why don't I want to do it? They're like, because they're a lot of trouble. I said, well, what does that even mean? Right. Right. If I don't want any trouble at all, then I wouldn't ever raise a penny. Right. I said, but what does that mean? They're like, well, they're, they're, they don't know what they're doing, so they're going to ask more questions. I said, look, I got, I, got, I got guys that have tens of millions of dollars that don't know what they're doing. Sure. So I said, what's the deal? They said, and then I found out how expensive it was to cre create a Reg A fund. It costs 15 grand. This is really important for your viewer to, 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 to understand, okay? It costs $15,000 to open a Reg D fund. It costs 250 grand to offer a reg, reg A. And then I started asking, why does it cost so much money to do the Reg A? Because Wall Street does not want the everyday guy diverting money from the 401k to Grant Cardone. They don't want any competition. And, and so the reason we offered the Reg A is because Look, I, I got a lot of people that follow, 11 million people follow me online. I was a little guy. I still think of myself as a little guy. I came from nothing. And, and for me to not have, for me to only cater to wealthy people, I just think it's wrong. So that's why I did the reggae. I just wanted to address that. You no, know, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, hats off to you for that, because I do think that, you know, the cost is prohibitive, uh, in many cases. And, um, especially, you know, uh, you, you know, it's impossible to do an asset specific fund virtually for that. Um, you know, yeah, just doesn't yeah. make any sense. So, so good. And, for and you. the goal is what we're going to do is I'm going to raise a billion dollars in cash in the next three years. Right. I'm going to raise a billion dollars in cash. I'm going to give it all back to the investors. Basically. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a fee driven entity. My, my play is not on the fees of the property. My other seven companies pay me well. Okay. They pay, pay for the plane and, and my fun and my trips and, and my expansion. The real estate, the play with the real estate different than other real estate companies is if I can raise a billion dollars through crowdsourcing, social media, don't pay any fees out. Like I'm paying no one anything. That means if I raise a billion, a billion goes in. That'll give me $3 billion worth of assets. And if I can pull this off, um, Wall Street will open the vault and say, can we give you another 10? <laughs> there you go. And, and that's really my play on the deal. So love the, uh, love the attitude and the mindset. Where, you know, you've got, you've got obviously uh, Cardone Capital, but if we want to learn more about 
um, you and your strategies, mindset, et cetera. Where, where can we go for that? Yeah, look, you go to grantcardone.com forward slash free books. I have a link there. They can grab the real estate book for free. Anybody that invests with me, I'm like, hey, please read the book first so that you know what I'm doing, what I'm looking at, how we buy things. Um, I'm not buying storage. I'm not buying retail. We don't do strip centers. I don't do land. I don't develop. I don't do condos. I buy one product, multifamily, rentals. I think that the story lasts for a long time. I don't, I think it is frothy right now, but I don't think it's over. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, th- right. I think that we're in a, I think that we're in a super cycle right now for the renter and it's not going to change. People are not going to become home buyers again. Well, just to your point, you know, I had, um, I had, uh, Doug Duncan, who was chief economist of Fannie Mae on, um, a few weeks ago. And he talked about one of the things that's a driving force for, for apartments and uh, and that is that even though we might be a little frothy, like we said, maybe the you know the markets have been expanding for so long, we've also got a housing shortage and and so that demographic uh, force is is also something that hopefully is going to keep us uh, keep yeah. us in the and, and, and 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 people need to start shifting what what is frothy by the way and what's driving the froth okay right. because. First of all, there's a tremendous amount of equity. There's a shortage of affordable housing in this country. Then you've got to redefine what affordable is. It used to be $800, okay? Affordable in Sugarland, Texas, outside of Houston. If I can buy a brand new deal and rent it for $1,600 a month in the neighbor, the housing around me is a million eight. You've got to start doing a different math here. The, the rear view mirror will not serve you in your local market. You've got to look through the windshield. And when we look at deals, when we buy deals today, if I find a great asset in a great location, I'm just going to overpay to get it because my horizon is not three or four or five years like the guy bidding against me. And my, my, my motivation is not the fees. My motivation is I'm looking for doubles and triples. And if I got to sit on four or 5%, to get a double or a triple, I feel great about that. And, and and lastly, is the inflation factor. We still haven't. Nobody's coming to terms with what Warren Buffett said is the most misunderstood economic factor in all of economics, which is inflation. Steel, glass, concrete, labor. It looks to me like they're going up. Yeah, and. So yeah, and we got twenty one trillion dollars of of debt. Uh, inflation is not going anywhere. It's going to be encouraged. Yeah. Um, you know, you can either you know increase GDP or you can inflate. And so we, yeah. we we're inflating is a lot easier. We're going to keep doing that. And, and we have five trillion dollars sitting in bank accounts just in America. We got another five plus trillion dollars sitting in equity and homes. That's the thing that needs to be confronted right now. When people talk about the fraud. That $5 trillion, nobody should have equity sitting dead in your house right now. That is the most uh, expensive capital on this planet right now. That, that Americans are fooled into thinking, I got two or 300 grand of equity in my home and, and I'm not using it. What you should, you shouldn't even have a home. That's right. You, you should have that money working for you. Your home is not an asset. Uh, a lot of people uh, would disagree with that, but I agree with you 100%. Grant. Rent where, rent, rent where you live and own what you can rent. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show today, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, uh, I'm not a uh, not like a super flashy guy like Grant, you know, with uh, his cars and planes and stuff. But we, but one thing that we do definitely uh, agree with one another on and reflect each other's opinions on is that real estate investing can create a lot of wealth, and a lot of people know that, but they stay away from it anyway. Now, why is that? Well. Some think it's risky to invest in alternative assets, and they just can't get out of that idea that owning real estate is not, in fact, an alternative lifestyle. It's not having blue hair or a nose ring, you know? Uh, What I tell you is that real estate investing has been around long before the New York Stock Exchange, and it will be here when it's gone, which I think maybe in 20 years, It'll be some sort of a blockchain market instead. Others worry about real estate because the idea of tenants, termites, and toilets. But the reality is that if you are an accredited investor investing in syndications, it's just as easy to invest in real estate as it is to invest in stocks and hopefully with much, much better returns and stability, right? Now, If you're an accredited investor and want to get off the couch and put some of that lazy money to work, I would highly recommend you join our investor club by going to wealthformula.com. We have a lot of interesting stuff coming up that you are going to not want to miss. But anyway, that is it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.